For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this morning is The Israel of God. The Israel of God. This is Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. So we're working now verse by verse through Paul's letter to the church at Rome, where together we've come now to chapter 11. And in a section of text that began in chapter 9, Paul's primary concern in these chapters has been to address the spiritual condition of the vast majority of his Jewish countrymen in light of their rejection of Jesus Christ, in light of their rejection of the gospel. The Jews have not submitted themselves to that righteousness which is from God through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. They've not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God, but rather they have sought a righteousness of their own that is through the law. They have stumbled over that stumbling stone. They have not obeyed the gospel and they will perish in their unbelief. So Paul lays out this masterful case from the text of the Old Testament, from texts that the Jews themselves knew really, really well, from texts that were considered by the Jews to be indisputably authoritative, Paul lays out his case. When the Jews claimed title to heaven on the basis of their descent from Abraham, Paul explained to them in Romans chapter 9, they are not all children of God because they are the children of Abraham. Those who are the mere physical descendants of Abraham, those, Paul said, are not the children of God, but rather it is the children of promise who are counted as the seed. Rather than Ishmael, for example, God said, in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Rather than in Esau, God chose Jacob to inherit the blessing. When the Jews claimed that such a free and sovereign determination on the part of a sovereign God would make God unjust, that God would be unrighteous, disregarding the covenant that God had made with Abraham, Paul reminded them of God's word to Moses. I will have mercy on whomever I will to have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will to have compassion. Salvation is not of him who wills, nor is it of him who runs, but rather salvation is of God who delights to glory in his own name by showing mercy. For his own good purpose, God grants mercy to one and God hardens another. When the Jews claimed title to heaven on the basis of their own works under the law, Paul explained to them in Romans chapter 10, they have failed to attain to a necessary justifying righteousness that they sought through the law. They failed to attend that because Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Jew and Greek alike, for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. When the Jews claimed that the Old Testament didn't reveal the gospel that Paul preached, that the Old Testament never revealed God's free justification of sinners through faith in Jesus Christ, God's promised Messiah. Paul explains from David, the sound of God's heralds has gone out to all the earth. 
the words, their words to the ends of the world. In his judgment upon Israel, God would permit himself to be found by those who did not seek him. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Only a remnant of the nation of Israel would be saved. So Paul begins to draw his case then to a close. It is not that the word of God has taken no effect. It is not that the promises of God have been made in vain. It is not that the promises of God made to Abraham have failed because they are not all Israel who are of Israel. You might think to yourself in hearing these texts and reading through this section of scripture that these things pertain to to Israel. How in the world do they pertain to me? How in the world do they pertain to us? Brothers and sisters, those of you here, those of you here who have not turned from sin to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you may be tempted to pursue a right standing with God through all manner of means. You may be tempted to pursue a right standing with the Lord Jesus Christ through all manner of ways. You may be attempting to justify yourself in your standing with God by believing all manner of lies. But God has determined one way of salvation. God has made one provision for sin, and that is the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Believe upon him. Put your faith alone in him alone and be saved from all your transgressions. Be saved from the wrath of God. God has determined one way, and it is Christ alone. Stop justifying yourself, attempting to do so out of the Bible, as the Jews did, claiming title to heaven in all manner of ways that don't apply biblically, that don't reflect genuine, justifying faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't claim title to heaven based on who you are or what you've done. That's the error of the Jews. Paul doesn't explain these things merely to win an argument. He wants to win your soul. Paul wants to win the souls of his countrymen, his brethren, according to the flesh. Paul hopes to win them. He says, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow, continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Paul wants you to be saved. It's in chapter 11 that Paul brings his case concerning Israel to a close. Having considered Israel's past, Paul is now going to explain their present and their future. And he does so beginning in chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, in light of these things, I say then, has God then cast away his people? Certainly not. Absolutely not. God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Chapter 9, at the beginning of this section of text, opened with Paul addressing the apostasy and unbelief of Israel. The Jews essentially asserted that if the gospel that Paul preached, if the gospel of God's free justification of sinners through faith alone in Christ is true, 
And if that gospel is offered freely to uncircumcised Gentiles, then Israel's rejection of that gospel would imply that God's promise to Abraham had come to nothing. God has abandoned the terms of his covenant with Israel and has dealt unjustly with the tribes of Jacob. Chapter 11 now opens with whether or not their rejection of God means God's complete rejection of them. Doesn't mean that God has cast away his people. Literally, in verse one, has God pushed them aside? The word refers to shoving them away with force. Has God shoved them away from himself? Will God now, because of all their sin against him, will God now refuse mercy to the physical seed of Abraham? Are his chosen people now to be fully estranged from the covenants of the promise? Paul answers the question in the strongest possible terms. Absolutely not. Literally, may it never be, God forbid. We saw that very same expression in chapter 3, verse 3. Turn there with me. Romans chapter 3. We saw the very same expression there. In chapter 3, look at verse 1. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Absolutely not. You see the issue, right? Will Israel's unbelief, will their apostasy render the faithfulness of God to, of, to his word, to them, as it pertains to them, will it render God's faithfulness to his word null and void of no effect? Absolutely not, Paul says. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Paul expresses himself in Romans chapter 11, verse 1 now, with essentially the same force. He's essentially making the same point. God has been faithful. He has been faithful to his promises to Abraham. God will never cast away those who are part of the true Israel of God. God will never cast away those whom he foreknew. God is faithful. Do you see? God is faithful. Now, Paul's answer is consistent with multiple Old Testament texts that we're familiar with. I want you to turn to one with me. 1 Samuel chapter 12. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 12. Paul's answer is echoing, again, texts from the Old Testament that the Jews knew really well that they trusted in as indisputably authoritative. And he's echoing those texts now in his teaching, in his good instruction here uh, to the Jews. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20. And after Israel... After Israel had sinfully rejected God as king over them, asking a king for themselves, like the rest of the nations around them, Samuel said to the people in verse 20, do not fear. You have done all this wickedness, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. It's amazing, isn't it? You have done all this wickedness. Do not fear. Why? How is that possible? The grace and mercy of God. Grace and mercy of God, do not fear, 
You've done all this wickedness, but don't turn aside from following the Lord. Serve the Lord with all of your works. <laughs> not with all of your heart. Right? This is not a ritualistic religion. This is a religion of faith. It's a religion of heart. All of your heart. All of your heart. These are the words of faith that we heard from Moses, aren't they? Right? With all of your heart, verse 21, do not turn aside. For then, if you turn aside, you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver. They are nothing. Do not turn aside. For the Lord will not forsake his people. For his great namesake, he will not forsake them. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. Not for anything that you've done. Not for anything particularly lovely or appealing, or favorable about you, but entirely because it pleased the Lord to delight himself in showing mercy. Look with me at Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. God will never forsake those whom he foreknew. God will never forsake his people. Jeremiah chapter 31. Look there at verse 35. Verse 35, thus says the Lord. This is the Lord who created the heavens and the earth. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day. How good, how faithful. The ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night. Who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances, if those principles, if those laws depart from before me, says the Lord. In other words, if they stop working in the way that the Lord has intended them to work, right? Then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. In other words, they won't. <laughs> Thus says the Lord, verse 37, if heaven above can be measured, which it cannot, and the fountains of the earth searched out beneath, which they cannot, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. In other words, I will never cast off the seed of Israel for all that they have done. For all that they have done, would God be just to cast off the seed of Israel? Absolutely. But for all that they have done, despite all that they have done, God delights to show mercy. God delights to pour out grace upon grace. God delights to show his compassion. God delights to show his goodness. Despite God's sin against him, despite the sins of the people against him, God will not forsake a people for the glory of his own name. He will not cast them off or shove them aside. God is faithful to his word. So despite, back in Romans 11, despite Israel's repeated sin, Paul is going to prove this to them, okay? Paul then proves God's faithfulness to save his people with two key examples. The first of those examples is the apostle Paul himself in verse one. Paul says in verse one, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not, because I also am an Israelite. I also am of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Exhibit A, the apostle Paul himself. Do you see? Paul says, 
I am a living, walking, breathing testimony of God's faithfulness to his word. I am exhibit A. God has not shoved his people to the side. God has saved me. Can you say that this morning? (laughs) Can you say this morning that you are a living, walking, talking, breathing, doing, worshiping example of God's faithfulness to his word? We have them all over this place. God has them all over the globe. His people, whom he has called to himself in the person and work of his son, are walking, breathing, gospel-preaching testimonies of the grace of God through the gospel to save people despite their sin. Because God delights to show mercy. God delights to show grace. Because God has determined to set a distinguishing love upon them from before the foundation of the world. God delights to glory in his own faithfulness, in his own mercy, in his own grace. Paul says, that's me. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul says, I am exhibit A in that wondrous grace. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Look there at verse 13. Verse 13, Paul says, although I was formerly worthy of such grace, although I was formerly so lovable that God had to save me, church is going to be better off when I'm in it. (laughs) Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Think with me for a moment about that statement. What a testimony of God's grace, right? What a testimony of God's mercy. Paul was a notorious rebel, a notorious rebel. Now, Paul suggests, he implies here that if he persecuted the people of God, knowing that they were the people of God, then he would have been expected, he would have expected to have been judged like an Amalekite. If you remember the Amalekites and who they were, Paul would have been, Paul would have expected to have been judged like an Amalekite. So Paul didn't know they were the people of God when he was persecuting the people of God. But even though Paul did not know that, he didn't know that they were the people of God, Paul's ignorance was no excuse. Luke 12, 47, the servant, that servant who knew his master's will, not ignorant, he knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do do according to his will, he shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know, in other words, he was ignorant, yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. What are we saying? God showed tremendous grace and mercy to the apostle Paul. Showed tremendous mercy to the apostle Paul, even in his ignorance. Paul acknowledges that now in verse 14. Verse 14, the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom, Paul says, I am chief. And that's not, it's not exaggeration. Paul is not speaking in hyperbolic terms. Paul means that. However, for this reason, verse 16, I obtained mercy. Here's the purpose. Here's God's purpose in it. I obtained mercy 
so that in me first, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his patience. So that in me first, Paul says, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Paul knew that he deserved the judgment of God. Paul knew it. But Paul also knew that he was exhibit A for the case that Jesus Christ is faithful to save. He is exhibit A for everyone who would consider the gospel and turn to Jesus Christ in faith to be saved from their sins. If God will save Paul, then certainly he will save me. Amen? If God will save Paul, he'll save me. God, why is that? Because God is faithful to his word. God is faithful to his promises. God delights to show mercy. He delights to pour out grace. He will certainly save anyone who turns to faith in his son. He will save even you. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul was exhibit A to the Jews. Back in Romans 11, an Israelite, verse one, an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin, exhibit A to the Jews. You could not have found a Jew more opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ than Paul. You could not have found a Jew that was more zealous against Jesus Christ than Paul was. Has God cast away his people? Absolutely not. He has not. He saved the apostle Paul. God has not cast away, verse two, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Paul is the chief example. Now notice with me about verse two. At the end of verse two, Paul demonstrates the breadth of God's faithfulness, the immutability of God's faithfulness by connecting God's faithfulness to save in time with God's determination to save in eternity. This stretches out over eternity. How faithful is our God? He is faithful in eternity. If God has decreed it, God will bring it to pass. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. God's foreknowledge, brothers and sisters, God's foreknowledge is the guarantee that God has not and God will not cast off his people. No matter where you are, we, we tend to think of things in terms of time. We are creatures. Uh, so we live in time. We think of things along a timeline. So some people think of it like eternity past and eternity future. It's not the abs it's not the correct way to think about it. If you think about it along a spectrum like that, there is no quote unquote time where God will ever cast away those whom he foreknew. There is never a time at which God has ever or will ever be unfaithful to his word. You have that as a rock on which to build your faith, hope, trust, and assurance. You have that as a firm foundation. God will not cast away his people. We looked at that word foreknew carefully when we were in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Turn to Romans chapter 8. The word therefore knew doesn't merely refer to what God knew, 
but rather refers to whom he foreknew. Okay? It doesn't merely refer to foreseen faith, what God knew. It doesn't merely refer to foreseen actions of sinful men. The word is connected to God's determined purpose. It's connected to his decreed ends, his decreed will, his determined purpose. The chief example of that being the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, where the Bible says that he was delivered up by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. It has to do with his determined purpose. It also has to do with God's distinguishing love, his distinguishing election of a people for his own name. God determines in love, that's Ephesians chapter one, to set his love upon a distinguished or a distinct people. And that which God has determined, he will see it accomplished. It's the very same in Romans chapter eight, verse 29. We see both his love and his determined purpose on display. Four, verse 29, whom he foreknew, there's the word, those whom he foreknew in eternity, these he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he, Jesus Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, those whom he foreknew and predestined in eternity, these in time he also called. Those whom he effectually called, these he also justified. And those whom he justified, these he also spoken in the past tense as if it were already an accomplished fact. These he also glorified. That which he has determined, he will accomplish. It is so inviolable a truth that it serves as an unbreakable chain. It is spoken of as though it were already done. Our salvation begins with God's foreknowledge and it inviolably, inexorably leads to our glorification. It is an unbreakable chain. So then verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? No one and no thing. Right? So back in Romans 11, when Paul says then in chapter 11, verse 2, that God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew, just like in chapter 8, Paul has in mind a people who are the objects of God's saving purpose. He has in mind a people who are the objects of God's saving decree, his saving determination, a saving purpose that is then worked out in a series of divine acts. These are a people who have been foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and will most certainly be glorified. And it is these, as the objects of God's distinguishing love, as the objects of God's mercy in eternity, who will never be cast away. You see? They'll never be cast away. Why? Because God foreknew them. He will never cast away his people whom he foreknew. Neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen? Amen. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. He is faithful to his word. Now it's here, Romans 11, with the mention of God's distinguishing foreknowledge that Paul once again, think with me now, 
Paul once again now distinguishes between the true Israel of God, those whom he foreknew, and the mere physical descendants of Abraham, those whom he did not. I want to say that again and think with me. It's here with Paul mentioning God's foreknowledge that Paul once again distinguishes between the true Israel of God, those whom he foreknew, and the mere physical descendants of Abraham, those whom he did not foreknow. And we saw that in the opening of Romans chapter 9. Not all Israel are of Israel. And he makes this distinction very very clear in reference to the second of his two examples. God has not cast away his people. Why? Example one, the apostle Paul himself. Example two, the remnant of Israel that God saved in the days of Elijah. The remnant, that remnant of Israel whom God foreknew. Look at verse two with me. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Exhibit B, if you will. Paul's ultimate example, if you will, from the Old Testament, Elisha and the 7,000. Paul refers here to an account from 1 Kings chapter 19 that was very well known, obviously very well known to every Jew. Or do you not know? They obviously knew. And in his appeal to a text that would have been crystal clear in their understanding, Paul once again refers to the doctrine of the remnant. The word remnant refers to that part which remains. The word is made up of that root. It refers to a small part or a small portion that remains after the larger part or larger portion has been destroyed. Concept was introduced to us by Paul in chapter 9, verse 27, when Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah concerning Israel. Listen to this from Isaiah. Though the number of the children of Israel, speaking of the physical nation, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. There will be a small portion that remains. God's promise to Abraham as it pertains to the physical seed of Israel, has not failed. But due God's judgment upon them for their sin against him, God's promise was going to be fulfilled to a remnant of that seed who were genuine believers, those who had placed their faith and trust in the promised Messiah. God was going to save, but he was going to save a remnant. It would be the faith of that remnant that would distinguish them from every other physical son of Abraham. It would be the circumcised heart of that remnant that would distinguish them from every other physical son of Abraham. It would distinguish them from the vast majority of Israel who floundered in apostasy, idolatry, and unbelief. And it was that truth It was that truth in the heart and mind of Paul that led Paul to explain at the outset of chapter 9, verse 6, they are not all true spiritual Israel who are of the physical seed of Israel. 
who are the children of Abraham? Who are the children of God? All those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. That's the identity of that group. All those whom he foreknew, predestined, effectually called, and justified through faith in his son and will most certainly glorify. It's those whom he foreknew, do you see? All those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. Even though the vast majority of Israel will be objects of God's uncompromising justice, there will remain a small remnant of Israel who will be saved as the objects of God's sovereign mercy. And God fulfills his promises to Abraham. God fulfills all of his promises. God fulfills his promises to Abraham by preserving for himself a faithful remnant. Listen to Isaiah chapter 10, verse 21. The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. Not all will return, the remnant will return. For though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. There's a striking judgment associated with those words. Only a remnant will return. There is amazing marvelous, wonder-working grace associated with those words. A remnant is going to return. Do you see that? The judgment, the severity, and the goodness of God. In chapter 1, verse 9, Isaiah says, unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. Folks, it's a wonder and a marvel of God's mercy and grace that any of us are saved at all. But in the face of such grievous sin against him, God delights to show mercy. And God delights to show mercy in faithfulness to his word. He is faithful to his promises. God has been faithful to Abraham. Amen? God has been faithful to the Israel of God. And you and I can say amen to that too. Let's look at Paul's reference then in its context. Turn with me to 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19. Paul refers to the account of Elijah. In 1 Kings 19, 1 Kings 19 follows upon God's great victory over the 450 prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. Uh, the prophets of Baal built an altar, put a bull on it. Elisha repaired the broken down altar of the Lord and put a bull on it. Those ignorant prophets of Baal would call on the name of their gods, burn up their sacrifice, and Elisha would call on Jehovah. Those lousy prophets call on their false god from morning until noon, jumping about, crying out, leaping, cutting themselves with stones. Elijah mocked them. It's complete ignorance. You know, he says to them, maybe he's meditating. <laughs> maybe, you're, maybe, you're, maybe your God is out thinking about stuff. Maybe he's in the bathroom. That's what that, that's what it means there. Right? One commentator, a Puritan, called it a brown study. <laughs> Maybe he's in a brown study. Right? Maybe he's sleeping, Elijah said. Then, after they made fools of themselves, Elijah called the people to himself. These people had been worshiping Baal. Right? These people had been worshiping, these are the, the covenant people of God, and they've been worshiping Baal. Elisha calls the people to himself. He built a trench around the altar. He filled it with water, doused the whole place with water three times. Elisha called on the name of God and fire 
rained down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice. The people, <laughs> what you call a come to Jesus moment, right? The people shout, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Something they obviously should have known. And Elijah took out and executed those 450 prophets of Baal at the brook Kishon. In 1 Kings 19 then, Elijah, on the heels of that event, is running for his life from Ahab and from the wicked king Jezebel, Queen Jezebel. He is the last of the prophets in Israel, and they are seeking to kill him. Elijah sees himself as alone. So in 1 Kings 19, verse 9, and there Elijah was, he went into a cave, and he spent the night in that place, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him in the cave, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? A prophet of the Lord like you? With what I've done in your sight, what are you doing here, Elijah? Hiding out in a cave. So he said, verse 10, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, Lord. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. There's a sense in here in which Elijah is displaying or manifesting a faithless amount of fear, a certain faithlessness or a certain unbelief. But Elijah also sees him as alone of the people of God, that they're going to kill off God's heritage. And so he flees. So the Lord then comforts Elijah, explains to him that he is not alone. Verse 13, drop down to verse 13. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. You shall also anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Avel Mehalah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. And it shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill. Whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet, Elijah, verse 18, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel. That's what has become of the nation. I have literally, in verse 18, left a remnant. That word, I have reserved is a root of that word, remnant. I have literally left a remnant, 7,000 in Israel, true believers who trust in Yahweh. These are my people whom I foreknew. I am faithful to my word. I have my saints in the nation. You are not alone. I have determined, I have decreed, I will also bring it to pass. All whose knees have not bowed the knee to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. All of Israel, all of Israel has gone after the Baals. The vast majority of Israel were apostate, unbelieving idolaters. They had killed the prophets that God had sent to them and they sought Elijah's life. Yet Elijah was not alone. And God comforts Elijah with his truth. God had preserved for himself a remnant. Of all those in the nation of Israel 
God had preserved 7,000 for himself as his true people. 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal as evidence of their election. They had not bowed the knee to Baal. Every one of those as evidence of their faith who had not pledged themselves to that false God, but had reserved themselves, had consecrated themselves to to Yahweh, to Jehovah, to the God of Israel. 7,000 that belonged to him. Well, back in Romans chapter 11, Paul refers then to that text to demonstrate that what God did in the days of Elisha is what God had also done in their day. And it's what God has done in our day in faithfulness to his covenant promises to Abraham. God has reserved for himself a remnant. Verse five, even so then, Paul says, at this present time, There is a remnant according to the election of grace. There are masses, masses, untold, uncountable, innumerable, an innumerable multitude who will perish eternally in hell for their sin. And you are here today listening to the word of God. We have the word of God in our hands. We can consider the word of God as he has revealed it to us. There are masses, untold numbers who will perish. God will save a remnant. That remnant must be, must be according to God's own good pleasure and will. It must be according to an election of grace. Why? Because there is nothing that we can do to earn it ourselves. There's nothing about us that deserves such grace and mercy. We have sinned. God in grace and in mercy, God in faithfulness to his promises has preserved for himself at this present time a remnant according to his own electing purpose. For Paul, Romans chapter 11 Even though most of Israel is apostate, even though most of Israel has rejected the gospel and rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, even though most of Israel is under the judgment of God, as it was in the days of Elijah the prophet, God has left himself a remnant among the mass of unconverted Jews, a remnant that consists of those whom he foreknew in eternity, a remnant according to the election of grace. There is a spiritual Israel within Israel. There is a spiritual Israel that exists within physical Israel. And what Paul's going to begin talking about now is how the Gentiles have been grafted into that spiritual Israel. We're going to discuss that as we work through chapter 11. The Gentiles have been grafted in. God has left himself a remnant. There is a true spiritual Israel that is to be distinguished from apostate Israel. And they are distinguished by God's election of grace, proving that election by their faith in Jesus Christ. They have not bowed the knee to Baal. They have not kissed that wicked false God. And they prove that God will not cast away his people 
whom he foreknew, they prove God's faithfulness to his word. Paul is not alone as a Jew who has placed his faith in Christ. God has left himself a remnant. You and I are not alone, not alone in our pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ through faith. There are many, many who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Amen. There will be an innumerable host around the throne worshiping with us in that day. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Therefore, run your race. We can't flee, hide ourselves in the clefts of the rock in the caves like Elijah. Uh, We have the Lord's work to do, and in him we are invincible. Amen? The presence of that remnant now among the mass of unbelieving Israel is according to God's sovereign election of grace. There is an election of grace, an election of God, through which God is calling out a people for his name, a people who are the spiritual seed of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ, not only from among the Jews, but also from among the Gentiles. Their salvation is rooted and grounded in the eternal decrees of God, who has in love for his own sovereign good pleasure foreknown them, has predestined them, called them, justified them, and will glorify them through faith alone in his son. And their election, which distinguishes them from all the others, is exclusively owing to their works. No, their election, I don't see anybody. There, are you guys with me? Their election is exclusively owing to all the good that they've done. Who their daddy was, who their, I know. Their election is exclusively owing to grace. It is in no way based upon their works which is those works, that is the means by which apostate Israel was seeking to obtain a righteousness or seeking justification before God. It is in no way based upon those works. Verse six, and if it is by grace, then it is no longer of works. It cannot be, despite all the false religion in this world, it cannot be anything to do with works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Anything that introduces a work is no longer grace. But what about this little small, just this little small, like walking out, just a little small thing, like just a little thing. Like we've got to do something, don't we? No. <laughs> or grace is no longer grace. You introduce work. Those things are mutually exclusive. You make a work out of faith. It is no longer grace. You make a work out of repentance. It is no longer grace. If by grace, it is no longer works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. You can get as granular on that truth as you want to. Dive into quantum particle physics on that truth if you want to. And you're going to find that the same truth is true. But if it is of works, verse six, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. You're going to work your way there or God is going to grace your way there. But that those things are mutually exclusive. They are entirely and completely mutually exclusive. You've got to get that truth in your mind and avoid every notion of attempting to attain to a right standing before God by 
works of the law. You have to have it clear. Why? Because our hearts are deceptive. Our hearts are self-justifying. We find all manner of means by which we may presume to a right standing before God in all of them. If they're apart from Jesus Christ and the grace of God have to do with something else, works. A gospel that is entirely accomplished, and I mean entirely accomplished by the work of Christ, a gospel that is received entirely by a God-gifted faith alone in Christ alone leaves no room for any meritorious works of, of your own. And Paul has been pummeling that dead horse. It keeps reviving itself. It's like a zombie horse. Christ alone provides the basis upon which sinful men may be justified before God. You cannot work your way to heaven. You cannot work your way to heaven. You cannot work your way to heaven. You cannot work yourself into justification. You want to prove your election? When you come to that realization, when you come to that realization, right? That it's not me, it's God. That should put you in the position, should put you in the position of realizing God is the one who initiates. God is the one who pours out his grace. God is the one who justifies. Job says salvation is of the Lord. If that's the case, then oh God, save me the sinner. Oh God, be gracious to me. Oh God, be merciful to me. It puts you in the humble position of abandoning yourself to him. There's just nothing for me to do, nothing that I can do. I am a, an undeserving sinner worthy of judgment. It leaves no room. You want to prove your election? Call upon the Lord Jesus Christ in repentant faith and be saved. You want to prove your place, if you will, in the Israel of God, your election according to grace. You want to prove your election and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in repentant faith and be saved. And God, the God who is faithful to his word, not sparing his own son, but delivering him up for us all. God who is faithful to his word in grace will forgive you of all your sin. He will unite you to his son. He will give you an inheritance with the remnant of his people. He will glorify you. To those who call upon his son in faith, God is faithful to his word and mighty to save. Amen. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your free, sovereign election. Thank you for all that you've done in time to bring about, bring about those things which you have decreed in mercy and in grace for your infinite wisdom in doing so, for your infinite power in doing so, for your infinite grace and mercy in doing so. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness, having decreed those things, bringing them to pass. Thank you, O oh God, that those things pertain to us, that because of your grace, and only because of your grace, because of your faithfulness, because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, we are in him. And we have a certain hope, and we have this joy of having been justified through faith. 
And if justified, then reconciled to God, peace with God, communion with you in eternity. Lord, we praise you. Thank you. I pray, Lord, that no one would leave here ignorant of that, obstinate to that truth, intransigent, immovable in their sin. But Lord, by your spirit, that you would move in their hearts to convict them of their sin and draw them, call them effectually to yourself. Grant them a new heart. Dwell them with your spirit. Save them for your namesake, we pray. For their own good, Lord, certainly in love for them, but for the glory of your own name as a testimony of your grace, as a testimony of your faithfulness. When the true Israel of God gather together in eternity to worship and to praise our great God. We thank you. We love you, Lord. Praise you. Praise you, Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Spirit of God, for planting this truth within us. Help us now to live and worship for you. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.